Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government. And under the support of that uh, center today, we are having a book forum about this book, McCain, The Myth of a Maverick, by our guest, Matt Welch. It will be commentated on by Lance Terrence, Jr., and before we get to the actual substance today, which I want to move on to pretty quickly, I want to mention, uh, generally speaking, for those who don't know how these forums go, uh, for about 15 or 20 minutes, both of our speakers, Matt will first talk about the book, and then uh, Lance will talk about his reactions to the book. Uh, and then at, at, when that's finished, uh, probably uh, getting on toward 1 o'clock or a little bit before, we will go into a question and answer session where you'll have a chance to ask questions of both of our speakers uh, about the book, about John McCain, and so on. Uh, thereafter, when we're finished, we'll go upstairs and have lunch and have more of an opportunity both to talk to our two speakers and, if you want, outside, if you haven't already done so, to purchase your own copy of McCain, Myth of a Maverick. Uh, I wanted to tell uh, McCain, uh, well, our topic today is, in fact, uh, John McCain, uh, and uh, his life and his politics. The 800-pound gorilla in the room, of course, is the New Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire primary, which is also held today. For much of 2007, John McCain was anticipated, uh, the second half of 2007, was thought to be a candidate who had, whose candidacy had collapsed and who had very little chance of winning the Republican nomination. Um, now... Today, it seems possible that McCain will, in fact, win New Hampshire, and that if you look at the markets, futures markets, the most reliable sources about aggregating information, predicting about the future, it does seem that John McCain may well become the Republican nominee for president in 2008. With that uh, in mind, I wanted to uh, talk about our book, but I also want to tell a McCain-related anecdote about each of our speakers, including myself, so I'll start with myself. Today I, I wrote in the last uh, end of last week a uh, op-ed about John McCain and some of the problems I thought he would have with uh, both within the Republican Party and in, in the fall campaign. Uh, and before I came here today, uh, this morning, it was published in the Baltimore Sun this morning, and before I came here, as you often do when you do something like that, I got an um, email from a reader. And the email said, you know, uh, Mr. Samples, thanks for writing this. It gave me an insight to John McCain. Uh, I'm 64 years old, a lifelong Democrat, and you make me want to vote for John McCain. Well, that wasn't what I was trying to do. So my anecdote is I made a mess to start off with. Um, now, our book today is by Matt Welch. Matt is the editor at Reason the magazine for free minds and free markets, generally speaking, known as, as many, to many of you as the leading libertarian uh, periodical. Uh, for most of 2006-2007, Matt was assistant editorial pages editor of the Los Angeles Times, overseeing the section's web operations, shaping the editorials, and writing <coughs> editorials, uh, including a, a, a widely read editorial about John McCain and Theodore Roosevelt, uh, for most of the period before that, from 2002 to 2005, he worked at Reason as associate editor, media columnist, and uh, a contributor to the web blog. Now, my Matt anecdote is also partially with me, um, which I guess indicates where th how quickly things have changed. When Matt and I were talking about this um, in doing this forum, we've been talking for about a month and a half or so about it, so we thought maybe we'll have it in December. Well, no, that turned out not to be possible. And I said, why don't we have it on, uh, you know, New Hampshire primary day? And Matt said, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, we could uh, entitle it McCain's Last Stand, question mark. Uh, because, of course, both of us at that time uh, thought it was a great idea because the, the conventional wisdom at that point was that McCain was finished. But thankfully for Matt's book and thankfully for our forum here today, uh, apart from other, everything else, uh, that turned out not to be true, so we have a reason to think that Matt's book and the insights he offers us are terribly important for the future course in the next year of our election. Matt Welch, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks very much, and um, I'd first like to offer my thanks both um, to John and Cato and David and everybody here um, for having this. It's very nice. Um, 
and uh, you know, it's more publicity than my own uh, book publishing company has done for my book. But uh, that's another story entirely. But I'd also like to offer my most sincerest thanks to uh, Mike Huckabee for giving my book more than a week's of shelf life. I really appreciate that. Um, I thought it might be interesting or illustrative or just kind of darkly comic to talk about how uh, I got to write this book to begin with, because it might give you an idea of where I'm coming from and at what were the little moments that exploded in my brain. I actually would have voted for John McCain in 2000 if, A, I was a Republican, and, B, uh, he was still running in the California primary in 2008. Well, I guess he was still running. But anyways, I'm not a Republican. I didn't vote in the primary. I found him to be an engaging American hero, very funny, blunt speaking. I've never been a member of any political party, so when someone kind of trashes their own party, it's kind of automatically uh, enticing to my uh, uh, sensibility. Um, and so, but I didn't really understand or know anything about him. I always found it curious that whenever he was discussed in, by journalists or political journalists especially, he would get almost no analysis of, well, what does he think about the proper use of government? You know, uh, people would always, and it was transparently obvious, they would wish cast their own kind of ideological fantasies and what he might be, depending on how much they liked him and how desperate they were feeling. This goes back to in 1996, for example, on the campaign trail in the New Republic, Michael Lewis, who last time I looked is not really a conservative or a libertarian or a Republican, was writing things like, uh, and this is close to a direct quote, of, uh, you know, I'm feeling weak in the knees. I'm feeling like a 14-year-old boy who's just discovered his own sexuality. It's really bizarre stuff. What I realize is that uh, I, uh, I'm looking at a Republican for the first time, and I like him. Uh, and uh, from there, it's if you like the guy personally, which a lot of people do because he's very salty, he talks to you, he doesn't have a big PR apparatus, he's a war hero, uh, he tells jokes, then you start thinking, well, okay, he's – you know, strongly anti-abortion, but he doesn't really play that up. Um, people uh, led themselves to believe that he was anti-war, even though he doesn't have much of an anti-war record. So anyways, as, a, as just a reader, as a consumer, I was puzzled, what, is, what, what does he actually believe in? How would you know that? And so in 2005, I believe it was, I went on vacation. Uh, I think it was uh, the first vacation my wife and I have ever taken, about seven years after we've been married, uh, to Mexico. And I brought his book, Worth the Fighting For. Has anyone read Worth the Fighting For here in this room? Yatu. How many people have read uh, Faith of My Fathers, for example? You ought to read both. Those are, I would argue, two of the best books written by a living politician um, or, you know, by the living politician's uh, best friend, Mark Salter. But uh, uh, they're both really terrific, insightful books. If, the, if you have a bone in your body that likes John McCain, um, you will find it interesting. And I would even argue if you don't, you'll find them interesting. You're not, uh, it's, it's unusual to have that kind of candor talking about your life. So I took Worth the Fighting For on a beach in Mexico with a strawberry daiquiri or whatever the hell. And um, from the first page, I found myself shocked. Um, wasn't necessarily the subject matter or anything else like that. It was the language. Uh, first of all, he gets off by, uh, he starts off uh, by uh, ritually criticizing himself, um, saying, you know, I haven't been a very, I haven't been as good of American as I could be. I'm, I'm oftentimes given to bouts of selfishness and all these kind of things, um, which is a strange thing for any politician or human to do, just sort of preemptively clearing his throat by saying what a bastard he is. Um, but secondly, and this is what really hit me in the head, was it was filled with concepts and specifically the vocabulary, and this is going to sound weird, of uh, 12-step programs. Tons of it. Um, if any of you have been so fortunate or unfortunate to read the big blue book of Alcoholics Anonymous or be around any kind of 12-step thing, there are constant bugaboos, code words. Uh, egotism is the biggest uh, enemy. Selfishness is the biggest enemy. You're always talking about the higher power under which to subsume your faults, a greater cause uh, above yourself. On every second page of that book, there are those words and those concepts constantly. And I just didn't know what to do with this. I found I'd never read anything that struck me so much as being full of this language. And I thought to myself, He's not an alcoholic, is he? I didn't really know much about his life. Um, what, what does that mean? And so I started extrapolating from it. Reading it closely, the higher cause that he kept talking about, which I figured might be an insight into his politics, was over and over again, it was the greater 
power, a higher cause of American nationalism in the idea that America is the shining city on the hill. Um, when he talked about the two worth of fighting for is his political memoir. It basically starts from when he comes back from Vietnam, and it talks a lot about his campaign finance reform battles and uh, his uh, first run at the presidency. And again and again in there, he is fighting wars against cynicism and against people not having great belief in their own government. Why? Because if you ha- are cynical in your government, then you, uh, you don't see the, uh, the greater, higher cause of American nationalism, which he points out again and again is the thing that saved his life in Vietnam. At the end of Faith of My Fathers, which again is a, it's a fantastic book, it's an interesting exercise. He wrote that in uh, 1998, and it was published, I believe, in early 1999. A couple of other things happened in 1998 that were of, of interest. Barry Goldwater, uh, his predecessor in the, senator, uh, in the Senate, and uh, a guy who he uh, was uh, l- looked up to greatly and wanted approval from. Barry Goldwater died. Uh, he ran for president for the first time, uh, John McCain, and he, and he had to write this biography of his war record, which people had wanted him to do for a long time, but he never really did. So he's trying to make sense of his prison experience in Vietnam. I have a, a, a probably a, a, a incautious interpretation, arguing with his own interpretation of uh, his experience in Vietnam. But uh, suffice it to say that he decided that what got him through there was faith in this higher power of American nationalism, that his own egotism, the whole book, Faith of My Fathers, is set up, the first half is very entertaining about just you know, what a hard drinking, hard living, almost going to be kicked out of everything type of guy he was. It's actually really, really fun to read uh, for those reasons. Um, but then he discovers in Vietnam that there's a limit to his selfishness, to his egotism, to his narcissism uh, when he's broken finally in captivity after a, a couple of weeks of torture. Um, and so this was his lesson. And in Worth the Fighting For, he wants to give that lesson to everybody else. He wants everyone else to have the opportunity to feel the redemption power of faith in this higher thing, which happens to be this sort of greater cause of American nationalism. Now, who cares, right? Why is that interesting? Um, It becomes interesting when you see how does that uh, evolve into policy. What do you know about McCain, right? You know that he's interested in campaign finance reform, war on terror, whatever. McCain, think about him like this. uh, there's a reason why, you know, 5,000 newspaper uh, editorial boards have endorsed him already this year. Um, one reason is which newspaper reporters and John McCain have something great in common. That is, they see something that's bad and they want to fix it. Um, in his case, he wants to fix it because it is, again, like cynicism or anything like else. It's reducing our faith in this higher thing. Newspaper reporter wants to fix it because it's bad. So... It's more important that you fix it than it is necessarily, or you say that you're fixing it. Even the appearance of reform is enough in some cases than the actual solution of, of what makes it work or not. Um, uh, campaign finance reform is a classic example. Money in politics, bad. What do we do? We use the government in a huge way to fix it. You look over and over again in McCain's career, he identifies things, and they are all over the map. It's ultimate fighting on Indian reservations. It's uh, steroids in baseball. All of these things. It's, uh, 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 he is described as like transcendent issues that, that undermine Americans' faith in country. So we need to do something to fix it. What happens is every way that he uses to fix it is by exercising government power or expanding government power over and over and over again. Excuse me. So in campaign finance reform, he cobbles together a reform that has pretty grave limitations on free expression, free political expression, which is the most important political or expression that you have under the First Amendment. Uh, in the case of ultimate fighting, you know, he wants to uh, ban it. He tried to. He was unable to do it uh, in all, uh, all states. Instead, he wrote a heavy-handed letter to every attorney general in the country encouraging them to stop it. Uh, if it comes down to steroids and baseball, he decided that we needed to have drug testing on the same level of the International Olympic Committee, and perhaps in high schools too. Why not? Um, none of this is, comes from a limited government tradition at all. It is anathema to that. And he has expressed very little over the years interest intellectually in that. He started off as sort of a default 
Reagan conservative. He liked Reagan. He won in Congress. He didn't really think about his own ideology that much. Um, over the years, he grew enthusiasm for uh, uh, getting involved in regulation, uh, tobacco taxes, uh, fighting down big business. He ran a pretty explicitly anti-corporate uh, interest campaign in the late 90s and early uh, in, in the, the 2000 campaign. And if you saw just the other day in the uh, 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 one of the debates he had with Mitt Romney, he compared his career to Mitt Romney's in that, well, Mitt's patriotism was a private patriotism, and this is less than a public patriotism. When he gave a speech in uh, 1998, I believe it was at Kansas University or 1999, sketching out his idea of, uh, of patriotism, it's essentially militaristic. You, he thinks that uh, private activity, private pursuit of happiness, private gain is less than public sacrifice underneath this higher good. Um, uh, I'm rambling here for a second, excuse me. So an important thing to think about all of this is that the biggest government aspect of what he is doing right now or what his beliefs and thoughts are. And again, these are totally unexamined by the journalistic class. Why? Because he has this huge biography. You know, he was a, a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He was a, um, you know, the, he was on the Straight Talk Express in 2000, and he's a big campaign finance reformer. His whole career, his whole life, his training, his family background has been to be basically a member, a leading member of what Neil Ferguson, who's one of his advisors, calls the imperial class. His father was a four-star admiral. He ran the war in Vietnam while McCain was a prisoner. His grandfather was in Teddy Roosevelt's Navy. He's expressed the greatest fondness for Roosevelt's expansion of the Navy, control of the world's sea lanes, and an idea that America and America alone can be the world power that, that, uh, that uh, assures freedom throughout the globe, right? Um, you recall a, a couple of days ago he was asked about how long are we going to be in Iraq, and he said 100 years, and who cares? Uh, what was interesting is that it doesn't occur to him at all that there's anything wrong with that. He was actually puzzled by the question. Like, we've been in Korea for 50 years. We've been in Korea for 60 years. No one really cares. What matters is that Americans don't die. He has no sense that there is a downside to an American imperial overstretch because he has this great and, you know, uh, inspiring trust in Americans' governance of the world. The question is, in 2008, is, is that the type of person we need? I would argue that maybe that's not the type of, of person you need. The, uh, he was thought of as someone who is skeptical about the use of power. And in fact, he was uh, against uh, the deployment of uh, Marines in Beirut in 1983 and against uh, Haiti in 1994 and some other things. Um, but in the process of writing Faith of My Fathers, he basically cleansed himself of the Vietnam syndrome. And the fact that we had won the Gulf War in a big way, the fact that Yugoslavia didn't go as bad as he predicted, uh, gave him, as his brother said, a, uh, a new uh, lease on life. It cleared his de decks in terms of the use of American power. He would be, right now, the most imperial-oriented president, most militaristic president since Teddy Roosevelt, at least. Um, and the question is whether that is something after seven years, eight years of Bush, and uh, is, is that something that we need? I would argue not. I think with that, I'll uh, stop. I'm sort of rambling at frayed, frayed edges. Um, thank you, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to answer some questions uh, later. <clears throat> Uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, it's always a delight to introduce my friend Lance Terrence, Jr. Uh, the resume is long, however, and takes a while. Lance is a leading Republican-American pollster and political strategist who's conducted literally hundreds of public opinion surveys and studies for corporations, foundations, and leaders of the Senate, the House of Representatives, and state governments, and, of course, presidential campaigns also. He recently served as senior strategist for John McCain's uh, current Straight Talk America presidential effort. Uh, in the past, he has served as a member of the board of directors of the Gallup Organization, the first managing director and president of Gallup China. 
in Beijing. He also served as president and founder of Terence & Associates, a Houston-based national survey research company, and as managing director to Burson Marsteller Public Affairs Practice here in Washington, D.C. Um, my anecdote with for um, um, Lance is also interesting. About 2005 or so, Lance and I uh, met, uh, he was starting his RT strategies at the time, and we had lunch uh, over on near DuPont Circle. And at the time, I remember one uh, several things we said there, but I remember Lance saying at the time, and this is actually extremely perceptive, Lance said, all the Republican consultants now understand that John McCain is going to be the nominee in 2008, and they all can't stand the idea of having to work for him because of uh, McCain's reputation. I think there's the irony, in a sense, of that uh, Lance did end up working for him, but more the perception, both that uh, he saw forward in time about uh, what may well now happen, although it is not essentially uh, a foregone conclusion at this point. Please help me welcome Lance Terrence, Jr. Thank you, John. With some timidity, I come here today not only because I've been asked to critique uh, Matt's book, uh, but I have great respect for anybody that publishes anything that tries to make sense of American politics. I also have great respect for the Cato Institute. I've always said it's kind of the soul of the Republican Party, and if Republicans paid more attention to some of the principles, uh, they would get less in trouble. Um, the third thing is, though, that uh, like any divorce, uh, there's always two sides to it. And uh, we need, from an intellectual inquiry standpoint, I think need to, to see uh, a little bit more, not so much um, about John McCain, because this is an election day, but a little bit more about how I saw the book. And in, in the effort to not only be an agent provocateur of, of sorts, but I also want to say that there, there is another side of the story. Uh, as you may guess, my quick overview of Matt's book, and he's certainly a decent fellow, and he spent a lot of time, and I've published some books, and they're not, they're not easy things to do, but he failed to impress me with the book, as you would guess, and, uh, and apparently most of America in the free market, because at this time the, the book has been heavily discounted, but that's not necessarily bad, because uh, I've gone from $30 almost to $7, but then again, most books in the industry do that after they've been published. And secondly, bestseller books uh, has it ranked about number 314,000th on their list. But that's not unusual either because the book just came out and it needs some uh, chance to, to uh, mature. But why is all this perhaps? Uh, in my opinion, Matt has uh, really unearthed nothing new at all, and that's the number one uh, proposition I will hold today. And number two, the underpinnings of his philosophical construct is little more than pop psychology by linking McCain to fictional characters and films and, at least ridiculously to me, trying to uh, develop the 12-step program from Alcoholics Anonymous to uh, digest McCain. And the tenor of the book, in my opinion, is snide and is really an attempt to review McCain's public and military life, mostly in a pernicious light, which is little to inspire confidence, in my opinion, in Welch's commitment to a careful analysis that he boasts. Lastly, to quote a reviewer of, of Welch's book, McCain is not my favorite candidate. However, he does not deserve this overboard attack by Welch. It was embarrassing to read as the material rambled and continuously tried to make mountains out of molehills. Compared to most other presidential candidates, McCain is solid as a Plymouth Rock. If it were not for Google and McCain's own words and all his published works, I wonder what other new material Matt would have been able to work with. To review McCain's own books over the last decade that he's written, or co-authored more ex exactly, is instructive to note the titles as against Matt's title, Faith of Our Fathers, a Family Memoir, Worth Fighting For, a Personal Memoir, Why Courage Matters the Way to a Braver Life, Character is Destiny, Inspiring Stories Every Young Person Should Read, and most recently Hard Call, Decisions uh, and the Extraordinary People Who Made Them. Of course, to be sure, others have written about McCain's life. Man of the People, The Life of John McCain by Paul Alexander, about 400 pages. Citizen McCain by good old Elizabeth Drew, 200 pages. And John McCain, The American Odyssey, an Un-American Odyssey by Paul Tinberg, also 300 pages. And if you throw in the McCain uh, name in history by Ancestry.com of 100 pages, you've got over 1,000 pages had written, been written about McCain in addition to the thousand pages or so that he's written about himself. My point is here, why, 
why I think we understand Matt was forced to find some new angle and, in my opinion, falls short. It appears that the book was an attempt to be just another, in my opinion, negative ad in a political season. And speaking of election campaigns, it is more than coincidental that we review this book on the day of the New Hampshire primary, where pre-election polls show McCain poised to win, or at least very close to. And the comeback hit in New Hampshire may, this time, be McCain, a reminiscence of the 1992 race with Bill Clinton. But my point here is that McCain has had, and apparently continues to have, a durable 10-year attraction to most Republicans, some Democrats, and plenty of independents. Hardly a mean accomplishment in today's polarized and partisan world. Looking at some recent polls about verbatim statements of why they liked John McCain, some were best chance to beat Hillary, can restore integrity to D.C., fights for what he believes is right, can attract independents to vote Republican. In McCain's own words, taken from a Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire speech about two months ago, I think it's instructive to note how he, he framed his campaign. It is easy to lose sight of all the importance uh, of this election, given all, that, all the nonsense that seems to dominate most of the coverage of late, and I guess we could include public, published works. Uh, our nation faces a truly historic decision that will affect not only America's destiny, but of course human history. We face a global threat from enemies for whom no attack is too crucial and too cruel. The world is changing in profound ways. We need to make these changes work for us and for all people who share our beliefs in a free market and free people. When you make your decision, you must ask yourself two questions. Which candidate has the best chance to lead the party to victory? And which candidate is best prepared and most committed to keeping this nation safe, prosperous, and powerful? I make no, ma I make no more a perfect servant of my country than I am a perfect human being. But in my years of service to this country, I hope I have proven myself worthy of your trust. My point here is that it did not, I did not see the balance on McCain's strengths and weaknesses that should have been undertaken by Matt, something that apparently the voters see and Welch does not, something that other authors apparently have seen and Welch has not, and something the national press that cover him daily has apparently seen that Welch does not. But there is an intellectual struggle to this published work that we should commend Matt for. As in the Roman Catholic Church, there is a process by which a person is classified or not as a saint, called canonization. The process was like a trial at which the saint was said to be defended by the church, and a prosecutor was appointed to attack all evidence uh, alleged in favor of the canonization. The prosecutor was properly called, as you might guess, the avocatus diaboli, which means the devil's advocate, and his opponent was called the avocatus dia, which means God's advocate. I'm happy to defend John McCain. We move right along. Um, I guess I would ask, would you like to say anything, or would you like to just wait for the q and I'm just happy to, to see a, a Republican defend the national media, uh, finally. It's nice okay. to see. I, uh, I thought I might take um, the uh, chair's uh, position to ask the first question, um, which will also have the additional advantage of me mentioning my own book, which is, uh, which is always important, the fallacy of campaign finance reform, which is obviously not going to be uh, – it doesn't concern John McCain a great deal, uh, although there's one chapter about McCain-Feingold. Uh, let me – and let me sort of articulate what I think uh, a lot of people on the other side of that fight of Senator McCain sort of felt, not just about the specifics of that, but about, uh, in a sense, how that – um, revealed his political beliefs and uh, not so much his character, but his view of the relationship uh, to of state power, to individuals, and the Constitution, which is that Senator McCain uh, felt very strongly and, uh, in various ways for a long period of time about uh, that campaign finance, money in politics was corrupting um, American politics. He also said in an early debate that it had corrupted the Republican Party or was corrupting the party and implied that the law had saved the party from that. What you don't get from Senator McCain, and perhaps in today's world that's too much to expect, is you don't get a sense of any kind of balancing or in, indeed any kind of sense of a priority 
of liberty and freedom of speech and freedom of political association, the First Amendment rights uh, at stake in this, you don't get a strong sense uh, that that was taken into account in a sense that there is uh, that there's one sort of concern he has uh, and nothing beyond that. And that one would expect, therefore, that his administration would be one that looked uh, returned again and again to this kind of reform process, so-called reform process, in a way that didn't take into account much uh, First Amendment values, which uh, I think um, certainly should be a concern for everyone, but particularly uh, for people in the Republican Party who have uh, taken a position on this. What I'd like to do is see if both of you could respond to that, whether I'm right or wrong about that, uh, and uh, how you think the campaign finance kind of that has been so, really made John McCain a national figure beyond the torture in Vietnam, uh, how that would play out in the <clears throat> McCain administration? Um, I'll go first. Uh, Certainly. Uh, I think uh, the, it's very illustrative that McCain is not running on campaign finance in uh, 2008 at all. You can follow him around for days. He won't bring it up. Uh, if it's brought up at a press conference, he'll say, you know, we uh, we got the limits down to 2300 We cleaned up money in politics, and he'll change the subject right away. Uh, one reason is obviously that he's trying to win a Republican primary, and he's been a lot more on his best behavior about things that he knows are hot-button issues that Republican base does not like. Uh, but another reason is just that it's eight years later. It didn't work. <laughs> um, there's not... Somehow it was this transcendent issue in 1999 and 2000 that we absolutely had to drive money out of politics and then all kinds of Teddy Roosevelt-style reforms would be possible after that because the pernicious influence would, would be gone finally. Uh, didn't work. He's talking about something else. His new transcendent issue is the war on terror, and rightfully so. Uh, but he's dropped it completely. He did uh, – I mentioned this somewhere. I think in 2006 he was on uh, – which show was it? Um, guy who had trouble with the Rutgers basketball team? Don Imus. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> uh, brain freeze. Uh, he went on the uh, Don Imus show in, I think, 2006 and said, um, if I had a choice between a quote uh, or a, 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 a corrupt government that uh, respects, quote, First Amendment rights or a clean government, I'll take the clean government every day. Uh, and I thought that, you know, at some point behind every joke, there's a truth, and uh, that was one of the sort of creepier things that I would hear someone say. His temperament is such that, and this is for good and for ill, and I mean, I, I should have mentioned more that, you know, when McCain lines behind your issue, he's the greatest guy in the world. You know, if he's going against the thing that you want to go against uh, and you don't mind the exercise of government power to do it, He's terrific. I think he's terrific about Guantanamo, you know. I think that he would, as a president, be terrific about using the veto or would try to be to uh, cut out pork. He has a pretty principled anti-pork stance, which is good for people of my political persuasion and hopefully everybody's. Um, uh, that said, um, when you're on the wrong side of it and, you know, and if that wrong side includes trying to defend constitutional liberties, um, it can be a little bit of a nightmare. And uh, this has come up again and again, campaign finance – he basically uh, portrayed all of his opponents, Mitch McConnell uh, probably most famously, as just being all in the corporate hawk and having no sense of principle about their opposition. He just steamrolled over the concept of principle in that opposition. And I regret to say that my uh, former colleagues in the MSM took that hook, line, and sinker. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell, free speech, come on. That was basically their response. And by now, everyone has moved on. Well... All I can say, just to keep the discussion going, is that uh, somebody that ought to be ready for free speech, it ought to be John McCain, because he's probably the most outspoken, um, less than formal uh, conversant of American politics I've ever run into. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of Harry Truman when uh, they were commenting to Margaret Truman about some of the profane words that Harry was using, and she said, and they mentioned damn or hell or crap, and uh, she said, oh, that's the least of them around our house. Uh, so McCain is pretty, um, pretty fierce, uh, competitor, and is like one of these people we've met in many of our lives that really wants to get the problem solved this afternoon and not study it for three or four months. And uh, he just has that competitive mode. So I, I think there's a good balance in, a, in American politics between those that want to study and then those that want to uh, take action. And then, 
like in football, you know, the, behind every uh, famous runner uh, that's made great acclaim in the sports pages, there was some poor old fullback that had to knock somebody down every time he ran the ball. And uh, McCain, I think, sees himself as uh, somewhat of a fullback that has to break up the system before you can make a long run. Questions? Uh, gentleman Chris had his hand up first, and then we'll come down here. Please wait, by the way, when you raise your hand until the microphone comes. And also, please identify yourself and please have everything in the form of a question. If you want to indicate for it's one or the other speakers, please do so. Uh, but please make sure we have a question. Um, I was at a forum here where Bradley Smith told about an, an, a time when he had an encounter with Senator McCain where Senator McCain started yelling at him because Bradley Smith, of course, was the FEC member who was basically wanting to abolish the FEC. I, I, am I correct? And, John, you yes. were there, right? Yes, there's a famous story about that. Yeah. Well, I would like to know, how is he going to – when when Vladimir Putin does something to upset us, when the president of Italy – you know, we have a host of people who we can sometimes upset in the abroad. How is he going to treat these people? Uh, is he going to be this bull in a china shop if he actually becomes president and commander-in-chief? Thank you. Well, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, his background and his family background uh, makes him part of the um, diplomatic corps. Uh, they've done nothing uh, in that area at all. Uh, but the other thing is that uh, I've been with McCain quite a bit, and uh, we all evolve and we all get mad at certain things. I'm sure you've had a few blow-ups in your life. You may even have a brother or sister that don't speak to you. Uh, these things happen. Uh, but John McCain is, is pretty fierce, but I've noticed that when I've traveled with him, which hasn't been a lot, there have been others that could say that much more than I could, um, he's got the most energy I've ever seen. He goes right into the crowd. He talks. He takes his press conference without any uh, being told what his talking points are. He goes right into the reception, and then he gets on the plane, flies back to Washington, and he does nothing but read documents. Um, and you're not supposed to interrupt him. And uh, every now and then he'll say, Lance, read this. And he gives it to various staffers, and he wants you to comment on him, and he wants something in the morning, you know, what, what you've done. He's, he's the most not only energetic, but I think the most comprehensive and complete politician I've run into. Some of the people we think have great free, free speech uh, uh, philosophies and so forth uh, are absolutely, um, I think, um, uh, not very strong uh, in terms of the intermittent things that go on in politics. That is, they don't keep driving, and they do it for... For publicity, but anyway, I'm just saying, John McCain, uh, in my respect, uh, based on the respects that I have for him and what I've seen, not only has mellowed a lot, but uh, he sees the way get the, the way to get things done, and I don't think he puts up with a lot of uh, um, nuisance uh, discussions, uh, and never has, and I, I respect him for that. Um. Uh, I think uh, that uh, McCain's temper is a very interesting and, and widely misunderstood thing. Um, one of the things that I defend him in the book is the concept that somehow, like, he developed this crazy temper in Vietnam, the Manchurian candidate uh, thing. That's just pernicious and easily provably false. Um, he, you know, famously in uh, one of his books talks about how when he was two years old, he would uh, hold his breath until he turned purple and then passed out because he was so pissed off about something. And his mom would chuck him in a bathtub full of ice. Uh, he's had a temper his whole life. Uh, what's more interesting is where he directs it. And I, I'd be actually curious to confirm this with Lance. But from my understanding, um, he might blow up now and then, but it's usually at people at his own level. He doesn't mistreat his staff, not, no. that, not that I know of in any way, which is a, a different kind of ugly temper uh, that, uh, that I think would be uh, worse to talk about. Uh, the one aspect of his temper that bothers me is that on occasion um, – it's directed at people who have a semi-legitimate grievance, and he knows it. And part of the thing that's amplifying his response, his sort of retributive response, is that. Uh, I, I list a bunch of uh, uh, occasions like that in the book. Um, that's worrisome to me. How would he react to Putin? You know, if uh, someone looks at Putin and calls him a, an asshole, I'm not going to shed a tear, personally. Uh, uh, I think that there's, it, there, would, there is a case for saying that if you're the hegemon, and certainly McCain believes in our hege 
I can't even pronounce that word, but whatever that is, thank you. Um, he believes in that, and I, I think that you shouldn't necessarily be irritable, you know, uh, if you're in that position because you're going to. I mean, the world is going to have automatically resent you, but I actually don't think that he's going to walk around blowing gaskets at world leaders. Did we, we have down front here? Then. I have a question for Lance based on something you said, John. Could you identify yourself, please? Oh, Susan Watson. Um, and, and you said in your introduction of Lance that Republicans are afraid that he's going to get the nomination and they really don't want to work for him. No, there were certain that. consultants in this okay, town so consultants. that were tied into other corporate okay. interests. Three years ago. Can you, can you tell me why those people don't want to work for him? Is it about his personality? He can't be controlled. Conservative? No, it's very easy. He is not uh, – let's keep in mind that a lot of the consultant class in this, in this country probably needs to be shaken up as well. Um, and we took um, uh, Bob Shrum a, a book to talk about, you know, a serial campaigner and all the losses that he's had for the Democratic Party. But that class of consultant really felt they could run this country through their puppets, if you will. And a lot of these consultants have worked in elections, and then instead of just working in that election, they continued that that association into votes, into policies, and, and through some other private clients they had. And I've, I've always thought that was a that's not the true warrior class that I grew up with. So McCain uh, does not follow directions very well. I mean, you can say that by his life. Uh, he's, he is a, a rebel with a cause. And um, he um, has, in my opinion, um, um, I guess your point on what they don't like is he can't be controlled very well. In fact, that his campaign this spring is a good, um, I guess, autobiographical kind of uh, period to that in that uh, the campaign strategy that we all laid out with a lot of research and a lot of thinking, uh, and I was in the long-range area and there were a lot of short-range strategists, but um, he dismissed it all when it came down to votes. Um, and then did he retire his consulting staff and get a new one? Did pretty much, pretty much. I mean, they were over, I think, roughly, you'd have to look at history books, but roughly 200 people that were being paid, and I think the last I checked it was like 19. I'm an unpaid volunteered helping him on polling and, and he's got uh, about a hundred people over there but most of them are are uh, pro bono just volunteers but uh, I would say that one of the things that a lot of the people that kind of came up through Reagan that liked controlling the environment if some issue was out of bounds they went up to sen the Senate real quickly and told a senator that maybe it's time for him to get back off of that uh, McCain is totally anathema to that kind of government well certainly uh if we want to say there's one good thing that might come out of a McCain uh, nomination is that uh, he will have done it without paid consultants. So that uh, that's not exactly an endorsement of paid consultants. You know, one thing interesting on your comment, uh, I've actually retired, uh, did my work with Gallup and left, and um, I was brought out re out of retirement by John McCain, which is kind of interesting because I didn't even know he knew where I was and, and asked me to come back to Washington, and I thought uh, – I've told this to my family. It was um, kind of uh, interesting. I thought he was just asking for my views on the American presidency since I'd been involved in a few. And I talked to him as before he went to Brussels on that big speech. And uh, he gave me about an hour and a half. And I thought it was interesting. I was brought in by two other staffers. They quickly went over to a couch, left me sitting in the middle of the room with him and with no help at all. And I didn't know where the discussion was going. And he asked a lot about the, the Falwell speech that was up and coming and why it was being reacted to that way and, and some other things. And uh, once it was through, he said, welcome. It's an honor to have you on board. And I thought he meant coming by to talk to him. And I f didn't find out till later that afternoon that he wanted me hired. And I asked why, because he had plenty of consultants in this town. And he said, you've always had a, uh, you've had a gift for, um, uh, let's see, I have to do this exactly right. You know how to win, and you have a gift for the unvarnished truth, and that's what I want. And in other words, he was already separating me out from some of the, maybe the current people. I don't know. And then he asked me to look at long-term issues, not short-term. And, for example, when Castro was almost on, the, on his last legs, I was asked to do a big Latin America political uh, monograph for how he should approach, if, if Castro dies, what we should immediately say. And I spent about a month preparing that. So he's really very interesting. He's not a political day-to-day, hour-by-hour. And polling, I was shocked when he came by my office. I started putting up the graphs, which weren't very pretty, as you know, last spring. And uh, he came up and looked on my door, and he said, I didn't realize this. And he was looking at his lines going down. 
But clearly through that spring, that horrendous spring that he had to go through, Giuliani declaring uh, the surge, um, uh, Dobson, and then finally immigration, pulling it all together by May 1st. And he had never looked at his charts on the polls. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I believe we had a question right here. We didn't do any polling until May, so it's, I didn't look at much. Yeah, uh, Sean Higgins. Um, the question I have is uh, there seems to be a, a one thread that runs through pretty much all the McCain stories and positions and anecdotes is that he's just an extraordinarily stubborn guy that once he fixes his mind on something, he won't change with it. that. Well, well, that's my question. I mean, to what extent is that true? I mean, how open is he to new ideas or to rethinking uh, his positions? Well, I just know from personal observation, uh, he listens a lot. He reads a lot. I'm told, for example, he won't take a single phone call till 9 o'clock. I don't care where he is because he has to read the London Economist, the New York Times, the Washington Post. All that's brought right to him. He doesn't want to be clouded with a lot of, I guess you'd say, the tedium of a politics before 9 o'clock. He also makes phone calls all through the day. And, I mean, he is amazing with the, na- the amount of people he needs to be talking to, most of them very short, but it could be anywhere from, uh, you know, a campaign operative uh, uh, to Henry Kissinger, and that's fairly common. Uh, the other thing is that when I talked to him, he listened to me, and maybe he had no choice, but he listened to me and he took some notes. And then later on, he asked the follow-up to some other things. So I found him very easy to work with. And every time I came up with a, what I call big history, that is a big theme, he wanted to know more about it. And uh, that's far from stubborn. I would uh, point out something that uh, most newspaper endorsements do not, which is that he's not stubborn enough to not change his positions. Um, people have, have portrayed him as, you know, he spoke the truth then and he hasn't budged from his opinion. I have in my bag like 75 newspaper endorsements that all make that same point. It's not true. You know, uh, he's changed his position on immigration. His heart is still in the same place, and it always will be. And it's always going to be in a place that the that the Republican base does not like, and uh, maybe a place that I would like more. Although I don't like necessarily his solutions. But now he's backed away from support of plenty of different immigration-related bills that he used to back. That he's a co-signatory of. He changed his positions on uh, ethanol in Iowa greatly. He talked about before in in his first campaign that. You know, ethanol by itself is totally absurd. Um, it's polluting and a bunch of other things. And now he's still against subsidies and good on him for that. But he thinks that ethanol is a great, viable thing and, and that ever since the price went above X, it's, it's perfectly wonderful. He's changed his position on any number of, of things and including his campaign tactics, too. I mean, very specifically, and, you know, this is good or bad depending on your point of view. But this time around, he made a great effort to try to uh, kiss and make up with a religious right. Uh, and, you know, to the extent his uh, book, um, uh, Character is Destiny, uh, suddenly this guy who's been so profane and salty and famously so, he's uh, capitalizing the word God in every other uh, sentence. It's really actually kind of embarrassing. Um, you know, he's talking about uh, uh, Gandhi and, and Darwin and everybody else like that and, and saying, I don't really understand them. They don't have the faith that I do. It was sort of one of the great and, and interesting things about McCain is that when he's being sort of insincere, and I think he was being insincere in those cases, he telegraphs it. Um, famously in the, uh, uh, in the 2000 campaign, uh, he would take out this piece of paper, crumple it up, and, and unfurl it and say, I think that the Confederate flag is a state's right issue. And he'd put it back in his pocket because he had, he'd let me gotten away from it. And then later he said, I, I wanted people to think that I was being held hostage to my own campaign advisors, and, and I was wrong for doing that. Uh, let's come down to these two gentlemen. First, the lower one. I didn't see who came first. Then we'll get to the second. Um, Terry Camp, I guess I have sort of a tactical question and trying to maybe get some insight into his personality as a result, primarily for Lance. The, um, what was it, ego, neglect, uh, or something else that led Senator McCain to approve a campaign budget that was modeled on an incumbent president's reelection campaign, uh, when the, the, and assuming that the revenue would flow in to finance that. Well, that's, uh, that's something we'll let the political historians sort out, because a lot of that won't be available till after the election's over, for good reasons. Um, 
A lot of people through the summer, when I first started working with McCain in the summer of 06, early in the summer, um, people were calling him in all the United States about Hillary and about, uh, and he was the presumptive candidate at that point. It was his turn, et cetera. And uh, I think he just had the feeling that he was a national candidate. Um, you don't get coronated, uh, uh, there's, uh, as Hillary's finding out very easily in this country. Um, it is blocking and tackling. Uh, if you're going to be a great football player, you better have a good spring training or you won't be starting in the fall. There are a lot of things went on in his mind, I think, that uh, then he got enmeshed, if, if not embroiled, and uh, more and more Iraq. In fact, in some areas, he was uh, almost Bush's spokesman for Iraq, which is certainly wasn't part of our campaign plan. Um, he also took the immigration issue from a human standpoint. You know, how many times have we heard him say that how many illegal immigrant families are fighting in Iraq, and he can't, he really, he gets very emotional when he talks about Arizonans that he's dealt with on that problem. So I think he got carried away into some bigger issues. Uh, the national picture changed once Giuliani got in, it became more of a horse race. And uh, most coaches adjust throughout the game. If you watched last night's game, there was probably about 12 major adjustments to offense and defensive tactics. And uh, that wasn't done. And it had to be, most of us, uh, this country generally moves by crises. And maybe that's what uh, helped him uh, get clarity to his campaign was to go through that. I'll just add that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, people who know more about the GOP, but basically almost every GOP nominee has gone through kind of a pre-coronation process so that there wasn't a big divisive struggle. The establishment is coalesced about around someone. So it would make sense given that, tactically, to try to get the pre-coronation locked up before anything else, and it just didn't work. Correct. Uh, Paul Sloan, uh, for Mr. Tyrants, and anybody wants to answer? <clears throat> this is his day, not mine. Okay, but... Right. Happy to learn. Either one. Um, if Bob Doe, if Bob Doe, I'm ahead of myself, if uh, uh, McCain is nominated and goes on to run against Obama if he's nominated... Will the election be similar to 96, that Bob Dole, another great American with a great war record from World War II, just be overshadowed by a young, um, like a Clinton and Obama with a lot of talk? And uh, will it be a generational thing? Well, at least we've moved up one war in this discussion. Um, <laughs> um, I don't think so. The context uh, of the national security risk and national security problems seem to be paramount that was a pretty good soft era to work through in 96, uh, except for Republicans uh, going after Clinton's heels. It was a pretty soft political environment. Um, and um, I would say that the, uh, the, the international pressure and dynamics will cause us to be a little differently looked at. And we really haven't had a really good uh, cleansing of our entire Iraq war participation and where it's leading and so forth. So I think these things will cause... A little bit like Kennedy and, um, and uh, Nixon in 60 were, who'd ever heard of Quimoy and Matsu Islands until we got into the election? But it became a pivotal event. And I think that it's, it's clear that McCain is a much better campaigner than Bob Dole ever would be. He has a bigger national profile. He's incredibly energetic, let alone for a, you know, a 95-year-old man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That, that's his mother, right? That's his mother, yeah. She's incredible, oh. by the way. But if I could just follow up on that briefly, I mean, the, the evidence about George Bush's approval rating and public judgment about the Iraq war follows each other in tandem through much of 2005, 2000, as you know, Lance, I'm sure. If you're going to run on a similar platform that uh, President Bush has run on, in a sense, you're an agent of continuity, but an agent of continuity in a policy that has really cost this, the current president uh, greatly in terms of his support in the population. It's hard to see, or let, let me put that out there, it's hard to see that how that's going to be something that beats an Obama who uh, runs as the change candidate. Well, we'll find out. Um, True. I don't think McCain has run most of the tensions between the White House and McCain have not been exactly diplomatic. Uh, they've been pretty, um, pretty cold on certain occasions and others. So it's not like he's following him lockstep, although he says, quite famously, I'd rather lose a campaign than America lose a war. Mm -hmm. He's taking an extreme. It is getting better. Uh, the deaths are not occurring daily, maybe monthly. Who knows? But um, 
I think the idea of where America fits in the world and whether they're going to take certain uh, steps uh, is all going to be discussed in this campaign. And Bush will be one component, but there will be a number of components. Uh, Someone had their hands up. I'm sorry. In the back. In the back, please. Thank you. Um, My name is Jeremy Meadows, and uh, you mentioned the uh, 2000 South Carolina um, you know, Confederate flag uh, issue. Uh, I'm curious to have uh, your comments on McCain and federalism and states' rights. Uh, he's, you know, like everybody in the world, he's a fair-weather federalist. He's, he's given lip service on occasion to it. Um, ultimately, he's not intellectually interested in it. He's never really shown an intellectual interest in uh, political philosophy, period. Um, you know, he has he has his own sets of principles. He thinks we shouldn't be, you know, larding up the budget with pork. He thinks a variety of things. Money's corrupting politics. But federalism, non-federalism, you know, it's, it's just not interesting for him. So uh, like a lot of people, you know, in 2000, when the heat was on him, he let that be a way to change his answer. But he's just it's not something that's really keeps him up at night. Probably what does keep him up of South Carolina is not the flag, but the uh, direct mail piece that uh, suggested that he had fathered a black child by a black mother, and it was the uh, Bangladesh, was that right, or Pak- Bangladesh, Bangladesh uh, daughter he, his wife adopted. Now, that was pretty rough stuff, and it caused McCain at a debate to actually stop the debate and tell George Bush he ought to apologize, or his campaign should for that. And Bush said famously, I don't know what you're talking about. So those are more things that I think uh, uh, McCain remembers about South Carolina. South Carolina, by far, is the most interesting thing psychologically uh, about this <clears throat> campaign. He has, yes. That's his line in the sand this time around. He wants to undo South Carolina and make it work. It's important as a precondition to win New Hampshire, do very well in New Hampshire, but he's invested everything in his strategy is all about South Carolina. So it'll be very interesting to see both how it plays out and then how he campaigns in the state. Do you have your hand up? Uh, to the side here. Hello, Radcliffe Lewis, intellects.org. Uh, Mr. Torrance, um, I've observed casually Mr. McCain over the years, and I'll take three issues, the surge, immigration, and the Confederate flag. In the surge, to my recollection, he was for it, then he turned against it, Not, then we had a surge. He was for immigration. Then he turned against it. But we have 12,000 Im- illegal immigrants in the country. 12 million. 12 million, thank you. Um, he was, the, the, the conference flag is an issue for black America. Then it seemed as if he was appeasing, but there are co- symbols of Confederate flags still on at least one state, plus South Carolina. Why should I not consider, given this pattern of Mr. McCain's ability to induce rhetoric that appears to show that he considers the opposing side, but then the Republican mandate still gets muscled through? Why should I not consider Mr. McCain to be nothing more than the Republican Party's anti-opposition master strategist? the last resort specialist who knows how to get the Republican mandate through by giving that appearance that he considers other options. But in the end, he does not. Well, I'm glad you wrote all that down so you could recite it to us. Um, I would urge you to vote for Ron Paul. Uh, I'll take a crack at, uh, at uh, what you're talking about. Uh, I don't think that uh, that he actually opposed or changed his position on the surge. He's um, he has consistently called for more boots on the ground or more options militarily in every conflict that America has been in for the last 10 years and certainly for every conflict that America will be in for the next 20. Um, I think that there's no question about that. And Kosovo, he brought up the idea that McCain would rather uh, uh, lose an election than lose a war. The line worked in 1999, too. He suspended his campaign for four months during the Kosovo thing so that he could uh, help Clinton rally Republicans to the Kosovo cause, um, during which time he got more face time than he ever would have if he was actually campaigning. It was, uh, and his uh, consultants did this consciously and were happy to, to do it. Um, 
you hit on something that is actually true, which is that McCain does change his positions, um, and he does it while maintaining to call himself and to be called a straight talker. This is a reason why my book is entitled the way that it is. I don't say that McCain talks any more crooked than anybody else, um, but he doesn't talk that straight. He just doesn't. I, I think no politician does, uh, but he certainly doesn't, and the 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 pathology behind continuing to say that he is a preternaturally straight talker, I think it's incorrect. And, I, and part of what I'm trying to do is just issue a corrective so that people know who they're talking about. He is, interestingly, haunted by the notion of truth from his father, who is a guy that he had great respect for and who he believes never told a lie. And this tension is at, at, the, at the heart of many of his books and many of his speeches, and it's interesting, but he'll still change his position. He'll still look you in the eye and say something that he knows not to be true. He's a politician. That's a very uh, question here. Good answer. Hi, Charles Davis. Uh, this question's for Mr. Welch. Um, I wonder if you could explain this persistent view of McCain as a man who will stick up um, for whatever he believes in, regardless of the political cost. Um, particularly in the light of his key role in the passage of the Military Commissions Act, which retroactively legalizes torture and gives immunity to American officials who may have committed war crimes. Could you maybe explain, like, I think it's part of the overall why does he get great press. And, I, and, and make no mistake, he gets, the, I think, the best press of any Republican over the last quarter century. I mean, is there someone else who gets better press? Um, <laughs> that's one answer. Um, uh, Tim Russert's replacement, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, he gets great press for a variety of, of uh, interesting reasons, and, and, and let's uh, let's separate this out. He gets great national press. It's interesting that he used the phrase "national reporters like him." Totally true. Arizona reporters—that's a really different story. I mean, anyone who does—if there's any journalists in this room and you're ever going to write a profile about McCain, go to Phoenix. Just go to Phoenix and spend a week, then come back. Okay, it's it's really going to change the way that you look at it. He. Uh, I mean, the fact that there's a book called Man of the People about John McCain for people who actually know him is one of the most laughable things ever. It's by a Rolling Stone writer. It's a good book in its own way. But Man of the People, he's a guy who's lived within the Beltway for like 75 percent of his life. He had senators at his breakfast table when he was 10. His father was a four-star admiral. His grandfather was a four-star admiral. His wife is a, a, a moneyed heiress. His mother was a moneyed heiress. He's not a man of the people. He's, you know, he can be a great guy. He's not rubbing shoulders with the proletariat. Arizona Republican activists who've known him, who been active in Republican uh, politics for 20 years have seen him twice. They see John Kyle every Friday or Saturday at a coffee clatch. They never see McCain. He doesn't rub elbows with those people. He likes the, the national journalists and people like that. Um, the reason why they like him is because he offers this incredible unfettered access all the time. I mean, except if you're someone who has an explicitly sort of hostile line of questioning, then uh, then you won't get your phone calls returned. But um, for the most part, he sits in the back of the bus. He doesn't have handlers. You can talk to him. There's this great Franklin Four piece about his foreign policy. It's in the New Republic uh, in 2006. Really instructive. And what's really funny is it's mostly critical um, and uh, talks about, you know, can he ever change his mind on Iraq? I hope he can because I really like John McCain. The lead and the end are all about how, you know what, I've always liked John McCain. Since that day, I was writing a profile on Fred Thompson, and I called up, and I went right into his office, and he had no handlers. And it just gave a positive spin to an otherwise negative article. Uh, it's interesting. I think another reason why is because he's a Republican, and journalists aren't used to liking Republicans. He's a war hero legitimately, and he's a, he's a funny, you know, interesting guy to be around. All of that together, plus he has taken on, uh, especially as he's become more popular nationally, r reporters' pet causes. I mean, campaign finance reform, for a lot of weird reasons, is an incredibly popular thing in American newsrooms, or at least was back when they thought it might work. Um, and as is, you know, taxing cigarettes a lot or going after whatever he's going after on a daily basis or, you know, Guantanamo. Again, some things that you might agree with, they're pretty popular in newsrooms. All of these combine to him getting good press. And also the fact that you can't even talk about him unless you recite these sort of bombshells of his biography, which are really, you know, fascinating and, and truly of interest. By the end of it, you know, who's going to talk about policy and philosophy? It's just sort of not going to happen. And, you know, also don't, uh, don't underestimate the power of repetition. If you say, I'm a straight talker, little straight talk here, you know, daily, if you name the damn bus this and say it constantly and then get this overexposure 
constantly, it's, it's difficult not to be caught up into it and intoxicated by it. I would just say that he's not detail-oriented. Um, you know, he might come up with a courageous position, depending or a terrible one, depending on your point of view. Um, most of his reforms have been faulty because he's not detail-oriented, uh, and this was, I think, a classic case. I think he wanted to do X for the Military Commissions Act. He got outfoxed. Um, Campaign finance reform was a big mess. Immigration reform was a bigger mess. I think it would have been a, a, a terrible idea. I and mean, I'm, I'm uh, not the anti-immigrant in the room, you know. But, uh, but it's not the details that matter. He just wants to throw everything at the problem. And so when that happens, he's going to fall short sometimes. Other questions? Anyone? Down front here. We have a few more minutes. Thank you. Uh, I'm Rola Brentland. I'm interning here at Cater from Sweden, Stockholm. So I had a question about the European perspective from uh, John McCain. Uh, I think that the exposure he gets in European newspapers is that he is kind of a right-wing nut job, Iraq, just winning and nothing else. And and I would like to know your views on that and how see um, what he sees himself in a role in international politics and how he sees on cooperation with the European Union and, and the Nordic countries and so on. Before you answer, I want to repeat what she said. She's a Cato intern from Sweden. The world is changing, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we have uh, one of the staffers from Reason uh, <clears throat> lived in uh, Sweden for uh, four years. Big Swedish. I can't comment um, at length on the European reflections. Um, we already know about the American exceptionalism advocacy. Um, but, you know, I would say that he talks a lot about Teddy Roosevelt as a doer. I mean, he reformed the, the corporations, if you will, for monopolies. He obviously promoted a lot of environmental changes to this country, et cetera. But in actuality, I think he acts more like Churchill in that he uh, is kind of a rebel without, without and with the cause throughout his life. And when it came time to perform, he was ready to go. And he, he spends a great deal of time of his speeches, in my opinion, and I'm somewhat biased in this, but if you really read some of his deep speeches, the one he made at VMI last spring, right. uh, there are some others, uh, the, the, perhaps the Brussels speech uh, to NATO, et cetera, they're quite eloquent, quite deep, and almost impossible to translate into a campaign theme because uh, they're so complex, and he shows a great deal of... Uh, Expanse of his knowledge and what he what what the world needs to do. So I would see more Churchill than I would Roosevelt, and he's certainly not a right wing nut, or he'd they'd be voting for him. Um, I would just add to his speeches. If you're going to read one, it should be the rogue state rollback speech, in which he laid out a doctrine under which basically laid out the doctrine for preemptive war years before it ever occurred to George Bush, and said that we should be backing democracy movements in authoritarian countries, and if we tell people that we're backing them, we should uh, fulfill the promise with force if need be. It is a, uh, it is a more wide-ranging interventionism than I think any uh, president has contemplated in years and years, and people actually haven't spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, this aspect of his uh, candidacy. More questions, anyone? Ready for lunch? Okay. I would like to thank both Matt Welch and Lance Terrence Jr. for coming today. I'd like to thank all of you for coming to hear about uh, John McCain. I think somehow you'll probably hear more about him later today. <laughs> um, in any case, please uh, come upstairs, have Cato lunch, and let's chat more about these things. Thanks very much. <laughs>